Hello and welcome to That HR Podcast by People Management. My name is Emily Burt, and as usual, I'll be exploring all you need to know and plenty of things you don't about this month in HR, including our expert panel take the UK's bad managers firmly to task. Plus, have you heard the one about why HR professionals take themselves so seriously? We find out the punchline with HR director turned comedian Sarah Archer. And Tim Pointer is finding that family and work don't always mix in Tim's Pointers. That's all to come. The number of cases being taken to tribunal has increased by 90% since the abolition of fees last year. This could be down to vexatious claims or a failure to mediate effectively in workplace conflicts. But could the root problem be that we just aren't good enough at management? And what makes a good leader in the workplace? Well, two experts who have plenty of thoughts on management practice are Professor Sir Carrie Cooper, psychologist, professor and president of the CIPD, and Pash Reddy, senior manager and head of learning at Deloitte, who will be speaking at the CIPD Developing Line Managers Conference and Workshop in May. Welcome to you both. Hi, Hi Emily. So before we get into the constructive stuff, Pash, what is the worst management experience you have ever had? That's, a, that's an interesting um interesting question. So I was once pulled into a meeting um, by a manager and he had changed roles and responsibilities for everyone in the team. And um, there was no consultation or appreciation that people's roles were going to be changed and uh, how it would impact people. So there you are sitting in a room, called into a meeting, don't know what the meeting's about, and essentially been told, okay, your role is changing. This is now what you will be doing oh. immediately, oh, with effect immediately. Nice, and no, would you like to change your role? Just this is happening now. And I think it was a, an abuse of power, I would say. You know, um, He obviously had his own agenda, or was working to that uh, own aspirations that he may have had. And um, it was drop everything that you might be interested in doing, or what your strengths were, and do what I say. Carrie, what about you? Oh, I've had a number of bad management experiences. I think the worst one was where somebody did something that affected my job without telling me, but telling the people who worked with me. So they did it with them, sort of, in a way, it wasn't HR, it was somebody in a senior management role, even though I was more senior than that person, didn't make any difference. They went and told people that they could do something and they were people kind of under my charge, but they didn't talk to me about it. It was bad communication, basically. And I feel as though everyone has at least one bad management story, which tells me a lot about the way we view management, but also the way that management is in the UK. We have seen these tribunal claims increase a lot over the past 12 months, and there are a lot of very complex reasons why this might be happening. But Pash, to what extent do you think this increase could be down to issues around bad management? I think it's actually two things there, Emily. Um, firstly, I think organisations are not spotting bad management early enough, and so therefore um, there's a lot of remedial action that needs to take place, and therefore it goes to this point of tribunal claims. And then also that... Um, managers do not like conflict. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to resolve it when it does happen. And so what tends to happen is just plays on and on and on up to the point where 
you are faced with a tribunal claim. Secondly to that, I think that there's just a lot more awareness of employee rights these days. It's common knowledge in the US, I guess, tribunals and HR perhaps, you know, sides with that of the organisation, whereas the UK is leaning towards the employees, which is quite refreshing as well. So I think there's a lot of awareness now about employee rights and, um, and understandably so. If there's a bad manager and it needs to be uh, rectified, it, it does have that escalation point. You also hear a lot at the moment about the rise of the accidental manager, the idea that people are being put into management roles without being adequately prepared for them. And they are kind of unprepared for what the role entails, which is, you know, not necessarily that we have managers coming into a, a, a management role who are malicious or are actually out to get you, but just that they've not been properly equipped by their organisation. How is it that this happens? And is there anything that we can do to start addressing it and looking at those channels by which people get into leadership positions? I, I completely agree with you. Sometimes it's, you know, it's not the fault of the manager that they're not setting out to be malicious, but I think that uh, we haven't created enough systems, processes and policies to actually support that new manager. And also, if there's a history of bad management in an organisation, that could be passed on from you know, manager to manager. So this new manager does not know what a good leader looks like. So they are following in the footsteps of uh, previous bad management. And I think in terms of that, that could really have damaging consequences for an organisation. So what we do need to do as an HR profession is we do need to look at creating systems, processes and policies. So things like job design, reward, recognition and then anchor good leadership to those uh, qualities and attributes as well. In fact, the, what's really interesting about this is the following. So I'm a teacher and I'm a really good teacher, but how do I get ahead? Get ahead by becoming the head of department, becoming the deputy head of the school, uh, then the head. And it's because it's not in a sense accidental. For some, it's accidental. Somebody dies, and would you like to take over? You're a head of maths now, become the you know the head teacher or something. But a lot of it is also about people thinking, well, I want higher status and I want more money. But they never reflect on, do I have the skills to do the job? Do I really have the people skills that I need? And frequently, they do not. Now, they could be trained to get them, but normally what happens in, for people in, who get into managerial roles is they go off and do a one-day training program on management. That's not enough. It's a constant learning process, and getting training to be a manager is not cognitive. You want to train somebody on the people skills, that's experiential. There's a different kind of training mode you need for that. What are you like as a person? How do people perceive your style? That is much more personal. You should be engaging. Uh, you should get all the decision-making. That's cognitive. That's telling them what a good manager should be like. You need them to delve into who they are and how they affect other people. That becomes much more psychological training. So it might be that broadly as an industry, we need to start actually giving a bit more time and care and attention to our managers and, and thinking about training them in the same way that you would be training junior employees and upskilling them. I'm wondering if we actually need to start addressing the way that management is structured in the UK at all. Do we actually need top-down managers anymore? 
You've got organizations like Spotify and some of the big tech companies who are starting to divide their skill sets among their managers. So you have professional managers in these workplaces, but those who do things, for example, like allocate the workload at the beginning of every day are called professional specialists. So they have these same roles and they are valued in the same way in the workplace, but they play to the different skill sets that they have in ways that are very effective. Is this something that could work in other non-tech companies? Should we be thinking about extending it more broadly? I'm not quite sure. I think it depends on the sector and the job you're talking about. But I do think there are people who, if it's, if it's a particular sector where the technical competence is really, really critical, then you could divide the roles about you be a techie. But by the way, you could be a techie and not manage people and move up at the same level as a people manager does. See, that's the thing we fail to do. We somehow think we have pyramids in most workplaces. The pyramid means you have to become a line manager of other people to get the status and to get the increased money and, and career development, right? Which is what they should do is have a box rather than the pyramid. The box says, you're technically good. You're a great teacher. We don't want you to be a head teacher. Stay there, but you can earn as much as the head teacher. That is the way we should, we should do it. Now, there are some jobs where you could divide it up and say, you're the people manager of these techies, right? And these people stay technically orientated because it's so sophisticated that maybe they're not going to be good at people management by virtue of the technology, but you still want it. But they should also be rewarded. If they're going to stay in that techie role and you need them and they're important, let's not put them then and say, well, the way you're going to get more money is not only do the techie stuff, but do the management stuff as well. And they may be extremely bad at that uh, psychologically, personally. So if you are, worst case scenario, suppose you are an HR professional, you're in your organization and you're faced with someone who is clearly a terrible manager, who is not fulfilling that job spec in the way that you would hope. What is the best thing that you can do to address this? I think communication is key here. Um, we need to give that person an opportunity to explain their situation um, and actually understand their development points. So what I would say is that we need to define firstly what good leadership is and actually be able to communicate that expectation to this bad manager as such um, and make sure that you know, they know what they're living up to or need to be living up to. Um, we then also need to do diagnostics and have a feedback mechanism to ensure that when they are sort of exposing themselves as a bad manager or, or, or you know, doing a task that we would consider um, to be you know, a terrible manager as such, that they are being called up on it and that they can have some remedial action put in place. And we do need to create the systems, processes and policies to support this as well. So in the event that all of these means and have been you know, taken place, you've communicated, you've given them opportunities to do well and they haven't done it, then we do need to make sure that there's uh, processes and policies to make sure that uh, that person does not remain with that organization. Carrie. Well, unfortunately, HR has done very little about that. They have real, I think HR has a real problem with underperformance and what they tend to do is procedural. Okay, so what HR tends to do is say, give them a warning gives them feedback and a warning and asks them to improve and say we make things readily available for you for training, right? And that goes on and on and on until their total failure. I mean, they, they, they can't improve. Now, if they're a person who can learn and are trainable, that's great, all right? But I think sometimes what HR should do is 
say, look it, I've seen you in, at work. I've got lots of feedback. You're going to have to go through a rigorous program here of training. Are you up for it? Do you really want a people management role? I mean, are you really good at it? And actually work with the individual to identify what their weaknesses really are. And they could say, well, we'll trial it and see if you're going to get any better. But if you're not, then we're going to have to put you in a technical role. Or you don't have a role here. I mean, unfortunately, that's life. But I think what's, what's I think important is for HR to unwrap that individual's competencies and decide really over maybe a period of weeks, are they capable of doing that role? And are we wasting the training? It is the reality that managers are often the constant butt of jokes in pop culture. You know, we see shows like The Office, we see shows like The IT Crowd and The British Empire. And in all of these, the, the manager is the humour figure, the figure that you poke fun at. Is it just that we love to blame managers for things that are going wrong in the workplace? And should we maybe have a little more sympathy with their dilemmas? No, we should blame them. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, um, I think it's very easy to do that. I do it myself, you know, when I'm having a bad day and I could have just had lack of sleep, but I would blame my manager for uh, giving me extra work, which is, you know, part and parcel of my role. I do think, though, there has to be an awareness mm. that the manager has a complex role. They're dealing with a number of factors that influence how they do their, their jobs. Um, you know, there's the people element, there's the task element, and uh, they all have to bring it together. So uh, I think as employees, we do need to be aware that you know, the, um, the manager has a complex role and uh, sometimes a very difficult role to, uh, to complete. Very difficult, because if you're really good at it and, you're, and you have a lot of emotional intelligence and you're very socially skilled, uh, you taking a lot on, psychologically taking a lot on. It's a hard emotional labor to be sensitive to Emma, you know, looks pretty unhappy today. I better go talk to her. And then you know Fred's got a problem with his kid at home and uh, he's very ill. How do I deal with him on that? I have somebody else who keeps coming in late, but I know the reasons for it. I mean, it's not easy being a people manager. But I think if managers focus in on not thinking about I'm a technical expert, but actually my role is called manager. That role should be about the people, not about the technical bit. Not about marketing if you're a marketing manager. You have to know it to know and experience what your people are experiencing, you know, the people who are working with you. But you also have to, how do I get this team functioning? How do I get them motivated? How do I, oh, I can see someone's, I know them well, and they're normally very ebullient. And then in the meetings, the last four meetings, they've been really quiet and sitting back. That's the kind of stuff they have to recognize and trying to deal with that kind of thing. It, we, in a way, should feel a bit more sympathetic about managers because they have a lot on their plate. And the next level up are demanding bottom line results on top of trying to cope with everybody, build a team and all that. It's not an easy job, but, but there are a lot of people who can do that job if they're given the right training, if they're selected properly. I think, it, I think it's, it, it, it's a very fulfilling job in the end because you're helping build other people's careers. You're doing something for somebody else. If you look at your job that, like that, then I think it, it could be very fulfilling. Pash Reddy, Carrie Cooper, thank you both very much. Thank you.
It's time for our interview, and this month I'm talking to someone who uses laughter to teach people about the power of public speaking. Sarah Archer is a comedian, published playwright and actor, and a one-time HR manager. What's the magic formula between humour and professional success? Sarah joins me now. Hi, Sarah. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Hot. (laughs) (laughs) It is. We can't complain. So to kick off, can you tell me a bit about your background? Why it was that you went into HR and how you went from there to touring the UK as a comedian? So I was originally in IT. I was working in Germany for a company in IT when I was in very early 20s and uh, I ended up getting elected to the Works Council in Germany and becoming the full-time member and eventually chair and that got me interested in HR so I left Germany, came back to the UK, um, started off as, a, as an HR officer, worked my way up to HR director and, uh, and various consultant roles and so on but alongside the HR for about 17 years so probably I think my daughter was I don't know maybe just under one or something like that so a good 17 years ago I started doing comedy and I mean I've always liked to perform um, but just sort of at school and stuff but uh, I yes started doing comedy and then uh, did more gigs did a couple of solo shows at Edinburgh comedy store and then and then now I do occasional bit of comedy but I also use the comedy in plays and and so on so it was a I do think that you need a sense of humor when you work in HR to be fair because it's uh, it's one of those thankless professions that you know oh don't say that (laughs) (laughs) well it's not I mean there's you know it's, it's a great profession but it's a hard role, you know, you, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. But so a sense of humour is, I think, part integral to, to sort of being successful in the job as well. And how is it that you draw on those experiences from working as a comedian and your experiences in people management and human resources to help people find their public speaking voices to get to that edge of their comfort zone themselves? Well, I guess 20 years in HR or 20 plus years in HR, you're always, there's an element of coaching in the job as NLP, that I'm I, I an NLP practitioner as well. And the, the humour and the storytelling and the performance and, and the fact that I've got business experience means that I can, you know, can relate to business people. I'm not just not just not just a creative if that makes sense so I have a foot in both camps but what I find is the key thing is is it's not necessarily even about them finding their voice it's about them finding their message and and what I find is that you know I do humor but the key thing for me is is storytelling and getting people whether they're an HR person who is wanting to get employees to buy into change a small business that wants to get more clients or you know someone that's doing a TEDx talk or whatever it's about finding that core message and the stories that go with it because stories build a bridge from you to the to the audience and humor layered on top of that makes it even more impactful but it, it allows you to create that emotional connection so you can't sell things often on logic you know I always say that if you find a new hobby or idea and you you know you buy into it and you go and find all the stuff about it and then you go and tell friends and family often they won't get it in fact they'll start being negative but the problem is when you first heard about it you had an emotional connection which sold you on it and then you went to find out about the logical stuff so 
stories are a vehicle for you to be able to create that emotional connection. So it's understanding what people's pain is in a change uh, scenario, change program, and then building stories that help people see how your solution is going to solve the pain that they have and so on. And you do run um, coaching sessions and you run workshops with people, not just in, in human resources, but across like different industries, different places in business. What are the biggest concerns and the needs of people who come to your courses, come to your workshops? What are they trying to achieve? So I have a, a twice a year run a stand-up comedy course. And the people that come to that, often it's about confidence. Like I always say, if you can do five minutes of stand-up comedy, pretty much any presentation you do after that will be a walk in the park. I do, you know, one-to-one coaching with clients. And that can be if they have a big, you know, speech, if they're a corporate leader or if they're a, a business owner, because so many people are using speaking to grow their business these days so they need some coaching to get that story out and get their confidence but you know it's about confidence engagement whatever audience you're speaking to be able to keep that audience engaged and hooked and entertained business growth and and yeah and wanting to add humor so it, it varies you know but um but it's it's very much speaking as a vehicle towards an end goal whatever that end goal is and for human resources professionals specifically having worked in HR yourself but Mm. also helping HR professionals why do you think that having a strong ability for public speaking and a strong ability for humor is an important part of that core skill set you've already said that you need to have a great sense of humor Mm. to work in HR yeah do you think that being able to talk well is part of that as well so I would actually say it's not even so much public speaking you know when you're in a HR role Whatever, I I would defy anyone. There's not many HR roles that have a lot of power. So your job in HR is is always influencing. You're influencing stakeholders, whether they're the CEO or an employee on the front line. So I think equipping HR people with communication skills around storytelling, whether that's orally in a presentation or, or via written word, you know, you know, when we did a survey of our employees one time, the the, the average reading age was about uh, seven. And if you are sending out corporate speak communications, then you're 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 not connecting with your your mm. workforce. And equally, we get wedded to these memos and and whatever. So being able to use graphics, being able to use memes, you know, shaking things up again, using humour. So for me, public speaking is one element of it. But there's not many organisations that have an internal comms department. And I've had comms reporting into me in the past. And I think that the key is HR become HR people becoming expert communicators and influencers. And for me, storytelling and humour are critical tools at, you know, within communication. Now, we all know David Brent from The Office. <laughs> yeah. um, he always used to say that he was an entertainer first and a manager second. Obviously, not a great role model of someone in a position <laughs> of, of authority there. Uh, that ability to entertain, I think, is great. And I think it's a great aspect. But how do you balance it if you're in a position of responsibility and make sure that you don't go too overboard and overstep the line with a slightly misplaced joke, maybe? Yeah, I mean, that's why it's a delicate balance. I think 
you know, there's a Spider-Man quote, which is, with great power comes great responsibility. I think with, with humour, you have to have emotional intelligence. I would always go back to what's the intention of the message and is it appropriate to use humour? Whenever I'm coaching anyone, whether it's someone on the stand-up comedy course or, or, or someone who's doing a speech that wants to add humour in or whatever, the safest form of humour is self-deprecation. And but doing it in the right way so that you're not undermining yourself. So um, but it's you know, there's Harvard Business Review studies that show a correlation between being able to use humor and progression, being able to use humor and the size of your bonus. And people who told jokes at an interview, you know, were more likely to get hired, were, were more likely to be seen as confident and competent. The next time I go into an interview and they say to me, do you have any questions? I should say, yes, why did the chicken cross the road? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I will get hired. I can't <laughs> wait. I'm going to save that and remember it for next time. Beyond that, are there any practical tips that you would offer for someone who really wants to become a better public speaker besides, of course, coming on one of your yes. courses, taking one of your workshops. Yeah, so firstly, stepping back and looking at that from a strategic level first. What is the intention of the communication? What's the problem that you're solving? If you can get it to that level where you can really clearly define in a single sentence the, the purpose of your you know, presentation and what the call to action is, then build it out from there. Preparation and practice and visualization are great tools for overcoming anxiety. I mean, obviously with fear, the biggest thing is to get through fear, you have to do the thing that you're scared of. That's just the way the world is, but you can put these foundation in place, you know, the prep, the practice. If you, you know, for me, it's if you've got that one sentence, then breaking it into three key points. The human being has only got the capacity to remember three to five things. And for each of those key points, have a story, whether it's a story from your life that you can use to illustrate from the business, from the news, a case study, uh, and then some actual content. And with that sort of structure, it just gives you more confidence. And just remember, no one knows what you plan to say. So if you miss something, it doesn't matter. Keep it conversational and natural because the key thing, I think one of the key things to being successful in speaking is authenticity as well. It's, it's, it's you, but recognising that you're the vehicle rather than, you know, it's there, there to hear your message rather than to look at you takes a lot of the pressure off as well. And just to round off, before you leave us, um, do you have any good HR jokes? <laughs> so, you... yes, well, you, you, are, you asked me this question and I actually didn't, but I, I wrote a, a couple. I, I was testing them out in the CIPD council meeting I was at. So um, the, the one I think is probably okay is uh, why do HR people take themselves so seriously? I don't know why. Because no one else does. to end the show we turn as ever to tim's pointers with tim pointer please welcome our agony uncle he dispenses advice like a truth-telling vending machine it's starboard thinking's tim pointer let's have this week's question and this is a family dispute, which sounds like it could be on the backstage of Jeremy Kyle, but instead it's come to us. We have a listener who's written in and said, a friend of mine works for a company where the managing director and his boss is married to his mother. So his boss is also his stepfather. Unfortunately, this guy's mum and his boss are now about to divorce. And as such, uh, the company director has started to give this uh, listener a really, really hard time at work, which he believes might be a precursor to him being dismissed or forced out of the company. So 
that's really tough. And he wants to know what can he do now to try and limit this and then to think about his next steps. So family disputes in the workplace, they are far more common than you might think. Is that right? It's so common. Well, let's look at everyone's famous dysfunctional family at the moment, the Trumps. One of the fundamental questions when Trump became president was how do you disconnect when the family business has your name on the top of every large building or all, all around the world, how do you uh, disconnect the president of the free world? Insert comment of choice there. Oh, God, it still makes me so sad. <laughs> <laughs> Editorialising there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, don't. Keep it in. I want it in. <laughs> we have the leader of the free world whose name is on the top of all of these skyscrapers. And the question then is, how do you get the appropriate governance in place between the politics and the running of a country and the appropriate running of the of the company and the long-term family interests of the Trump family? Now, we're not going to solve that one in, in today's podcast. Mm. Tune in next week for more. Um, but... We see these questions being played at every single day. There are more family businesses than we tend to appreciate. And there are more families in business than we tend to appreciate. And in every business I've worked in, in FMCG or in tech or in retail, you're working with family members mm. on every level of a business. Yeah. Brothers, sisters, fathers, sons, wives, husbands, etc., etc. So you're always seeing those family dynamics played out. And I would imagine it's almost impossible to run one of those businesses without encountering some sort of conflict of interest between your personal lives and your professional lives on a near daily basis, whether those are struggles around power sharing or who's managing the bulk of the workload. Uh, what's another one? Oh, succession. Absolutely. I mean, it's the most fundamental part of any family business, that you're having ongoing conversations about how you're going to plan succession and development of the different tiers of family members through that business. And also the fact that your work Christmas party is inevitably just going to actually be on Christmas Day as well. I mean, that's traumatic enough just to think about. Well, the fascinating thing about family businesses is, of course, how much business is done around the dining table. Mm. It's part of everyday life. To come back to our listener, Mm. uh, this guy feels like he might be forced out of his job because of a dispute that's basically going on between his mother and his stepfather. What advice could you give to this guy? May I give two answers to this question? Of course. The first is my more formal answer, my employee relations answer. From that perspective, keep a diary, be really clear as to the note-taking about what's happening, when it's happening, so that there's a really clear record Mm -hmm. of his experience how he's feeling through this period of uncertainty, the impact on him. So he's absolutely clear as to what happens. This may calm down quickly. There's a lot of emotions in play in this in this situation, of course. This may calm down, but he wants to have that contemporary record of what happened at, at the time. He may decide that it's appropriate to get some external advice. So he might want to talk to an employment lawyer just to get a sense of anything else that from I am not an employment lawyer. So therefore, there might be some uh, some points of advice that it'll be appropriate to get. And most firms will give their first consultation for free. Sometimes just that act of writing things down in black and white can really help to clarify things in your own mind that, no, you know what, something is inappropriate here, something is going on and I'm not happy about it. And you kind of feel like you have that base of evidence to then move that forwards and take it to the next stage. We need counsel sometimes, someone to have this conversation with. In my work as a coach, so often when someone plays back to me in that confidential setting, 
this is what happened. This is how I felt about it. And you're watching them in the pro- in the process of that conversation actually work out what, what really matters to them. You watch them in the process of that conversation work out what really matters to them and what they want to do about it. So that's my my formal employee relations advice is absolutely have that contemporary record think about who you want to talk it through with absolutely because if your boss is your stepdad your angry stepdad and especially i mean i'm just going to assume here that because it's a family business it's a small one it might not be but if you have you know a small team and your your superior is the person who's involved in this who do you go and talk to because as you say, I mean, we've got no idea about scale here. Sure. They might have an HR department. They might not. Yeah. There might be someone that you can go and talk to within HR. We don't know ha- how much yeah. influence they have in this. You know your own network. You know your own set of yeah. circumstances as to who you can have a proper conversation mm-hmm. with. And that then sets you off the next stage. And obviously, I think we all know that if you are working and you have a, an established HR department, then HR is the first place that you go to get this solved. But if you are working for a small business and there is no clear-cut HR department and there's no HR function in your organisation, where do you go? You'll understand the power dynamics in your own organisation. There might be a non-executive director that you want to have a conversation with. There might be another family member that you want to talk it through with. You've got to think about where you're going to get the right counsel to help you work work this through. And as I say, this might blow over o- over time. Mm. When we have this mix of the personal and professional, we shouldn't assume that it's all going to end badly. These are professional people, and it might just be a short-term issue. Now, I said I wanted to answer this question two ways. You did. That's sort of my first take on it. My second take is a rather different one, which is, what do you want the future to be? If you believe, if, if this individual believes that this is going to be an ongoing source of difficulty w- within the business, then pragmatically, what do you want the outcome to yep. be? I think being aware of your own ambition, your own future, and all the different opportunities that you have, again, gives you greater confidence, because it makes you realise this is not the only future that I have continuing to work within the family business. There are other opportunities that I have um, ahead of me. And therefore, that gives you greater confidence, because you're not going into these conversations thinking, oh, my word, if this all blows up, and I'm forced out, which is the the language in the letter itself, then I don't know what that means to me. Yeah actually you start to go there's a lot of different things I can do in life it's a big world I've got you know decades ahead of me in my career there's so many opportunities and just by exploring some of those and again having some conversations you feel less alone you feel more confident and therefore you realize that your career and your future is not dependent on the opinion of one individual yes just don't necessarily hope that you're going to get a good character reference out of them I suppose well Uh, hopefully you get one from your mum yes hopefully you can get one from your mum at least I'm sure that would stand in an interview situation (laughs) Yeah, it always amazes me that we talk so much about work. We spend so much time talking about our working lives, but actual happiness and fulfillment in our roles so rarely comes into it. I feel like that is something that I I don't hear much of in my day-to-day conversation. And it always staggers me that people can spend so much of their time and energy doing something that they don't really care about and that they would compromise and put themselves in these very difficult and challenging situations when, you know, this is something that they could be doing for absolutely years. Why settle? for something that doesn't make you really happy and that you don't find enormously enjoyable. Then you're thinking about someone's future in the fullest sense. And it's a much more engaging conversation. It's a, you have greater energy for that conversation rather than closing it down into legal terms and saying, well, this is the case you'd have for an unfair dismissal. Having been involved in enough employment tribunals in my career, 
having been in that room and gone through that process. Nobody leaves and, and high fives their barrister. <laughs> it's no fun for anybody. Yeah. And therefore, the more that we can have pragmatic conversations about proper outcomes for everybody that leaves people feeling that they've been dealt with, with respect, with understanding, and with an, a positive energy as to their future, then actually that's a much better outcome for everybody. We'll leave it there. If you have a question for the next edition of Tim's Pointers, head over to our website or email us in confidence at pmeditorial at haymarket.com. And that's it from this edition of That HR Podcast. My thanks to Carrie Cooper, Pash Reddy, Sarah Archer and Tim Pointer. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud and of course on our website peoplemanagement.co.uk. Feel free to rate us and leave your nicest comments. My name is Emily Burt. The producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. And until next time, I've got to confess I have no idea what the British Empire is. It must be because it's not on Netflix. Goodbye. Goodbye.